when I was leaving a friend's house to come over here, uh, this beautiful great horned owl was hooting in the trees above my car, and just, which sort of speaks to what I want to talk about tonight, which is um, the place of the natural world in our practice, or how our practice relates to the natural world. And I have several hours worth of things to say about that. Actually, I have a whole book's worth of it. <laughs> For me, over the years, um, I know I, I came to, to the States in '93, and I always felt like I was being drawn here for the nature, for the land, for the wilderness, not so much for the culture. Um, <laughs> which is, you know, mixed bag. Uh, and as, as uh, my journey, my practice journey went on, I felt more and more drawn to uh, practicing outdoors, to practicing in what I regard as the, the great temple, as opposed to the smaller temples that we practice in. And I think I, I did that partly just very instinctual pull and um, partly because I began to see that the Dharma teachings were really very effortlessly accessed, more easily accessed for me outdoors silence, stillness, touching into the sacred, emptiness, interconnectedness, love, peace, calm. All those qualities I find very at hand in the outdoors. And when I talk about the outdoors, I don't mean, you know, finding that on some wilderness area up in Yosemite, I mean just stepping outside and hearing the owl hooting, for instance, or looking up at the night sky, or smelling the, the, the woodsy, damp fragrance after the rains today. So I began leading um, retreats outdoors um, five or six years ago, partly because I just wanted to share my love of uh, the wilderness and my love of the practice outdoors, and people seem to very much resonate with, with that. And I also feel like uh, that in some ways it's a return to the origins of the teaching, that the Buddha himself was a forest-dwelling ascetic, born in the forest. He lived as a prince for a while, left home, and did all of his ascetic practice in the forest and the plains, uh, and mostly taught and and traveled, walked for 45 years, uh, wandering around the forests, what was, what was then the forests of northern India, 
meditating, teaching, practicing. And as you read his teachings, so much of his teaching, his metaphors, his similes, uh, analogies, come from nature, the very intimate, close contact at that time. And as you also probably know, one of the significant turning points of his realization, or his his, uh, journey to realization, was remembering a time when he was watching his father ceremoniously plow the fields at the beginning of the planting season. And he remembered sitting under a rose apple tree. Um, This is after doing six years of very intense ascetic practice, sitting under a rose apple tree, feeling quite calm and at ease, peaceful, still, concentrated, certain equipoise of mind. And he realized that that was uh, a much better doorway, a much better balanced way to uh, freedom than the striving and the efforting of the ascetic practice that he was doing. And I take that to be um, a metaphor for how those qualities often come so naturally when we're outdoors. He also would say, often at the end of a teaching, he would say, there are trees and there are the roots of trees. Go meditate, seek solace in the forest, lest you regret it later. There are trees and the roots of trees. Some I always like that imagining monks and nuns going after the roots of trees, of which there are many in those days. And that tradition, as you know, carried on for for many, many centuries. The forest monasteries in Thailand, Burma, Sri Lanka, the practitioners up in the Himalayas, Tibet, Nepal, um, and then as the teachings moved eastward, to China and Japan. So many of those Buddhist traditions were very steeped in the natural world. So much of the poetry, the teachings, the metaphors came out of that direct contact. My favorite Chinese poet is Han Shan, who spent many, many years as a hermit in the ninth century. He says, as for me, I delight in the everyday way, among mist-wrapped vines and rocky caves. Here in the wilderness, I am completely free, with my friends, the white clouds, idling forever. There are roads, but they do not reach the world. Since I am mindless, who can rouse my thoughts? On a bed of stone, I sit alone in the night, while the moon, while the round moon climbs up Cold Mountain. It's a whole collection of his poetry called uh, Cold Mountain Poems. And we have, to some extent, um, in the West, a history of people going to the woods in the Christian tradition, and also uh, the Romantics, Romantic poets, Thoreau, Emerson, One of my favorite lines from Thoreau, who spent a couple of years in the woods. He wasn't exactly trained, I don't think, in meditation, but he likened his time there to 
contemplative practice. He said, I came to the woods to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of existence, to see if I could learn what it had to teach, and not when I came to die, discovered that I hadn't truly lived. I'm wondering if I'm preaching to the converted here. How many people, uh, how many people relate to nature as a resource in their lives? <laughs> All right. How many people make use of it? Less hands. How many people um, meditate outdoors regularly? Mm-hmm. Good few. And how many of you see your time out there as, as, a, as contemplative, as, as supporting your practice or inquiry insight? Mm-hmm. Okay, good. All right, talk's over. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as I was, began to write the book, I got asked to write this book about my wilderness work. So I began to write about the wilderness and... Uh, over a period of time, it became more obvious to me that it wasn't about the wilderness. It was about everyday nature, because we always have contact with nature all the time. Even if we're sitting in the building, um, the natural elements are here. But when we're walking around, outside, in our gardens, walking to work, there's a constant um, symbiosis with the elements that we usually take for granted, because our minds fixated on on other things, on other more concrete things, usually. But what I began to um, focus on as I was writing was the interplay between Dharma practice and nature, in the sense that um, I believe that the Dharma training, the, the, the mental heart training that meditation practice uh, develops, gives us so much more receptivity and openness and clarity and presence to take into nature. And because of that quality of presence, we can receive so much more depth, clarity, uh, so much more teachings. I'm sure you've had the experience when you take a hike somewhere and you've got some problems, some difficulty, some stress going on and you take a long hike and um, you get back, do a loop or whatever, and you get back to your car and you realize you didn't really notice where you'd been or what you'd seen or what you'd walked through because we're so fixated in our, in our stuff and our problems. And hopefully with the practice it gives us a little more awareness tools so we can actually not be so gripped by our fixations and actually open to the jewels that are out there. And at the same time, nature also provides that uh, nature invites awareness. Nature invites presence. It draws it out of us. It, it, it's so present, <laughs> imminently present. It's sensory. Whenever we're in the sense, whenever we're in our five senses, 
aware of our five senses, we're present. So nature calls forth mindfulness from the very simple necessity to pay attention to where you're going, to look where you're walking, to be aware of the environment, especially if there's any um, predators around or anything threatening, but also more simply just the beauty, the complexity, the diversity, the richness, the um, unpredictability calls forth a certain uh, quality of attention. I remember we were doing this uh, uh, a meditation retreat up in Alaska and we were doing walking meditation on the beach. Not a crunch, it was a pebbly beach, it was kind of crunchy, 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 crunchy. And all of a sudden, this humpback whale comes really close to the shore and blow, it comes up and blows. And when they're, when they're close, it's very loud, you know, especially up there in the, in the wilderness, it's pretty quiet. And there was about 15 of us doing this walking meditation and the whale surfaced and blew and everybody just stopped. It was a very magical moment. And just you know, feeling the presence of this beautiful being and just the, the preciousness of that moment. And it, to me, it encapsulated a, um, how nature just summons that, that presence, that highly attuned attention. I've also noticed that hiking, when I'm hiking in grizzly country, mm-hmm. up in Montana and Missouri and up in Canada, and slightly different quality of attention, Sometimes more fear involved in it, but you're very aware, very aware of not surprising the brown bears. Very interesting not to be top of the food chain for a while. I want to read some stories. This is a story from a friend and student who was hiking up in the up in British Columbia. Actually, she's in Vancouver Island. And she says, I was sitting in a grove of trees and I glanced up and saw a bald eagle soaring in the sky. The eagle would fly in a large circle around an old cedar tree, then disappear. After seeing this for a second time, I saw this magnificent bird come to rest on the giant cedar. She continued this pattern for four or five times and then suddenly something fell high up in the tree. I was intrigued as I watched her scoop it up in midair and bring it back to where it fell, from where it fell, to a place that looked like a nest. Could I be seeing this right? Was this her baby? I watched for a couple of hours as she patiently taught her young to fly. At first she would drop one baby from the tree, immediately fly underneath it, scoop it up and place it back in the nest. Each time she would let her baby fall a little longer before she provided the safety of her body. As time went on, she didn't take her young back to the nest. She just scooped them up and dropped them again and again until the babies learned to use their own wings to fly, just as our, just as our world teaches us how to use our own wings. So I think one of the beautiful things about nature is it, it wakes us up to wonder, to amazement, to to the mystery, to a sense of gratitude, a sense of awe. And I think if we're not in that place, we're not really paying attention. 
those bumper stickers that say, if you're not angry, you're not really paying attention. I always want to create one. If you're not in awe, wonder, and mystery, you're also not really paying attention. Much of Dharma practice is about coming to balance with whatever's happening. And nature provides a wonderful vehicle for balance in many ways. One of the ways I notice this the most is um, the way it's very easy for us to lose perspective to be closely identified with something, we're caught wrapped up in some argument, some difficulty, and often it only takes walking outside, walking around the block, just being in the garden, looking up at the trees, wherever you are, there's something that happens when we move into that bigger container, creates a sense of perspective, a sense of spaciousness, a sense of ease, or also a sense of calm. How many times have you been agitated and you go out to nature, you take a walk, and just by walking, being present, there's a sense of ease comes, a sense of balance. There's that wonderful poem by uh, Wendell Berry, who speaks to this beautifully. His piece of Wild Things poem. When despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. Now sometimes we might do this and sometimes there's a voice that comes up, well, this is just kind of copping out, you know, just going down to see, hang out where the wood drake rests, you know. We should really be facing our problems and diving into the difficulty and struggling and if it's not a struggle, we're not really practicing right. That's one view. The Buddha also talked a lot about turning the mind to the wholesome, turning the mind to the positive, cultivating wholesome states of mind. And there's a place for working with our our difficult states of mind. There's also a place for just shifting the attention. And I find for myself, shifting my attention to something bigger than my drama, my story, my dilemma, which for me is is looking to the, the natural world, is for me the easiest and most accessible resource. Just looking out the window. This great story that um, somebody told me she was sitting in uh, some high-rise building in San Francisco feeling really uh, depressed about what her non-profit was going through and feeling very stifled by the whole environment and she looked up, she had one of these these great high-rise views and saw um, a flock of geese flying, hooting, honking on the migratory path. And, and just something like that can so easily shift, shift the perspective. How many of you 
uh, practice up at Spirit Rock. Maybe done retreats up there. One of the beautiful things I like about teaching there and being there is the potency of the silence, which is the same in any retreat in, in some respects. But the um, I find the 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 more the retreat center is steeped in nature, the the more powerful the silence. There's a very powerful silence that permeates the natural world, even though it's actually never silent. If you really pay attention, nature isn't actually that quiet. But at the same time, there's a profound silence that permeates all of that movement and sound. And silence, as you know, is one of the most profound doorways to the sacred, to the truth which is why it's such a highly valued practice. And one of the things I love about doing my wilderness retreats is they're in silence. I can think of nothing worse than taking a group of people out into the desert or the mountains and having them chattering all day. (laughs) My dear of hell. (laughs) So the silence although it's intimidating for some people and challenging at times. As you know, for those of you who've done it, once, once there's some comfort that's accessed with it, it just allows a much deeper receptivity to oneself and to what's around us. So being outdoors in silence is a very precious way to, to be touched. Another thing that I notice outdoors is my mind naturally quiets. You notice that? You go out and you just take a walk, sitting in the park or sitting in the garden with a cup of tea and there's a way that when we remove ourselves from human activity there's so much selfing happens around our human world, human created world. Have you noticed that? So much me and my, so much stories. So, as you may have noticed, doing walking meditation in your living room is a lot different than doing walking meditation in your garden. You know, because in your living room, it's surrounded by me and my, it's surrounded by my stuff, my house, my identity that so easily triggers a mental proliferation. When we go outdoors, there's less of a tendency to grasp at nature as mine, even if it's your garden. You know really ultimately you don't own it, you don't possess it. You may have some identity around whether it's a cute garden or a nice garden or zen garden, but... I always find it humorous to be outdoors, especially if I'm backpacking alone, and the the backdrop of being in nature makes so much more apparent how silly our minds are, and how silly and frivolous are the places that our minds hang out a lot. You notice that? Maybe you all have deep thoughts, but when I look at my thoughts, they're mostly not that interesting. 
mostly thoughts I had yesterday. So this is a quote from Eckhart Tolle, who, um, from his second book, which I like a lot, which speaks to how the less tainted something's been by human activity, the greater the quality of presence it seems to possess. So, um, for me that translates as the more pristine an environment is or has been kept or left, the greater degree of presence and stillness uh, it calls forth. So he says, whenever you can bring your attention to anything natural, anything that has come into existence without human intervention, you step out of the prison of conceptualized thinking and to some extent participate in the state of connectedness with being in which everything natural still exists. To bring your attention to a stone, a tree, or an animal does not mean to think about it, but simply to perceive it, to hold it in your awareness. Something of its essence then transmits itself to you. You can sense how still it is, and in doing so, the same stillness arises within you. You sense how deeply it rests in being, completely at one with what is and where it is. In realizing this, you too come to a place of deep rest within yourself. This is from Kabir. When our eyes and our ears are awake, even the leaves on the trees teach like pages from the scriptures. When our eyes and our ears are awake, even the leaves on the trees teach like pages from the scriptures. So one of the things I like to do or appreciate about the wilderness retreats that I do is that um, given the Dharma focus of those retreats, it makes it very easy in terms of my job as a teacher to talk about the teachings because they're so selflessly revealing themselves. When I talk about impermanence, and we've been spending you know, a week to ten days outdoors, I don't need to say very much because it's so obvious. The light, the temperature, the wind, the elements, the leaves, the seasons, It's a ongoing teaching. It's this beautiful time of year, watching the leaves fall, watching the oak leaves cluster and the maple leaves glow and uh, wonderful reminders, wonderful teachings. There's a newspaper clipping I saw. If I have it, I don't think I have it. Maybe I do. a picture of a beautiful tropical island in Tuvalu, which I think is in, I'm not quite sure where it is, it's from the travel section and it says, it's now or never, this island's about six feet above sea level, enjoy it now, because sooner or later it's not going to be there, just like the North Pole is now full of slush as opposed to ice. 
So, I think one of the most beautiful lessons we receive from nature is how things are continually changing, but more importantly, how things are really letting go. The the, the fall season is such a beautiful reminder of letting go. These beautiful jeweled canopies of trees, just releasing it to the wind, to the cool breezes, to the rain. There's a great sense of trust in the cycles of death and rebirth and renewal. And I don't think we need to conceptualize any of this. I'm conceptualizing something that's very obvious. When we're outdoors, it's just, you know, in terms of evolution, our, our being so much more resonates and connects with these things. You know, it's, it's what we've grown up in for hundreds of millions of years. So it speaks to us in a language that's not cognitive, not cerebral. One of my favorite things to do, I live up in Mill Valley, Marin, and we get a lot of fog, and I live on a, on a ridge top, and the fog rolls down the other side of the hill, the valley, and it burns off before it gets to the bottom of the valley. So it's this amazing sweep of this rolling cloud comes down and burns and burns and burns all day sometimes. Just a wonderful uh, teaching of change. And then there's the teachings of death. So much of the natural world is about the cycle of birth and death, especially this time of year, going into winter, going into the dormant phase, watching flowers die, watching trees give up their leaves. When I was up in Alaska last year, I was there for the peak of the pink salmon run. And uh, the salmon have done a three-year migratory uh, route. And they come back to spawn and die. And there's about 50 million of them coming in up the estuaries and through the islands and into the small creeks and up to the runs in the woods. And it's a phenomenal event of life and death. You know, this is just the whole, uh, you just see the salmon jumping. I think salmon jump a lot. And so there's just the sea is moving, jumping towards its own death, but also going towards its, its, you know, life and creation. Very profound. Very moving. We also get a, a different sense of time. I think we live in a time with increasing time scarcity consciousness. I think people suffer more around feeling a lack of time than they do a lack of money or lack of pretty much anything else. There's a sense of there's never enough time, there's too much to do, there's not enough hours in the day, I'm stressed, I, you know, just you know, fill in the blanks of what, what the details of that could be. And I definitely get caught up in that. You know, wake up in the morning, do my to-do list, go, oh no, there's not enough time, 
What am I going to do? I'll take a walk. <laughs> take a walk. Ah, you know, because the natural world's not on the same linear time that we've created with our clocks and hours and minutes and seconds. And so we uh, go outdoors and we go, ah, oh, there's a different order, there's a different time, there's a different uh, way of being that's not so driven by this linear oppressive fixation. And suddenly we can relax and go, oh, well, we just do what we do. And come back and... You know, I think if, if there's one thing that the natural world does more than anything is it shifts our perspective. It just shifts our reality very quickly. Much quicker than any practice that I know. shifting us out of our linear time modality into a place that's more timeless. We touch the timeless more easily, I think, away from the confines of our small and large boxes. I've been leading these rafting retreats down in uh, Utah where we spend a week going down the Green River in Colorado through these canyon walls that are somewhere between 230 and 390 million years old. And it just puts a whole different perspective on time and timelessness and impermanence. And also gives, just puts our whole lives in perspective, just as looking at the stars does, just as seeing some vista, some vastness, looking at the ocean. The retreats I do are also um, uh, very uncomfortable. As you probably know, the, na- the natural world doesn't, doesn't lend itself to creating creature comforts for humans unless we build them. And so, I think one of the values of practicing outside is it, is it gives us a little more edge. There's less control, less control over the environment, weather, temperature, bugs, ticks, whatever wants to crawl on you and bite you and kiss you. And So we get to practice with our edge, our aversion, what we don't like, what we don't control. And last year tri- trips I've been out on, we've had good few days of rain and cold weather and uh, it's a great place to practice when the elements are not how we want them you know because life isn't like isn't how we want it and the natural world is very happy to provide that reminder <laughs> I go out with this guy who's an Alaska, old Alaskan, Alaskan fisherman <clears throat> He loves to take everybody out and we sit in the rain and put all our plastic, you know, rain gear on and just coming down in buckets and just sit in the rain. It's just water. It's just cool element. And then there's a teaching we receive about perfection and imperfection. I think this is a really important one. 
where we um, we were reminded when we go outdoors, uh, or we were invited to let go of our habit of judging and criticizing and thinking things should be different than they are. You know, we don't go around judging the oak trees because their girth isn't up to scratch or their, you know, canopy is a little, you know, slack in places. You know, we just go, oh, oak tree, oh, hillside, skunk. And so hopefully that we can imbibe a little of that to ourselves, that we don't uh, need to apply the same endless neurotic standards of perfectionism and um, endless self-improvement. Because the oak tree is just being oak tree. We can just be our old, funny, funky, idiosyncratic selves. And it's fine. Dharma practice isn't concerned with improving our personalities. It's not what it's about. It's about coming into profound acceptance and equanimity with who and what we are. And of course, there's the teachings of interconnectedness. Shakespeare said, one touch of nature makes the whole world kin. One touch of nature makes the whole world kin. So easy to fall into a sense of separateness and isolatedness, alienation, us and them. We go outdoors and we see, oh, I'm actually part of this. This is part of me. I'm not separate from this. Just two last things, and I think they're, they're probably the most important things. One of the profound things we can abide being outdoors is we, um, the natural world isn't caught up in the game of selfing, isn't caught up in the game of me and mine, isn't caught up in the game of separation that we like to play. So when we go outdoors, one of the things that often happens, especially if we're alone, is the sense of self or the sense of selfing, the habit of creating a self, dissolves for a period of time. And what happens when that happens? We feel peaceful, we feel relaxed, we feel open, we feel connected, we feel intimate, we feel at one with things, we feel a sense of union. Because we're not surrounded by an environment that's not selfing all the time, it allows us to put down that habit. And there's a really powerful, insightful tool. And lastly, I think, most importantly, what contact with the natural world does is opens our heart, opens our heart to love. It's very hard to pay attention fully to something without falling in love with it. Awareness really is the doorway to love. It's the it's the way it's the way that we touch, become intimate, connected with things, and in that way open our hearts. And we also feel the vulnerability of life, if we pay attention. 
the vulnerability, the fragility. You know, one of the things that people always talk about in interviews is you know, we have a lot of young deer that hang out there and turkeys and mice and and it's just so beautiful to see how open up people are when they see you know when they see these beautiful tender fragile life forms nature has this way of disarming us and taking our breath away and opening the heart to loving that which is So uh, we're at time, I'm afraid, and that was a whistle-stop tour through some things that I've thought about along the way. So thank you for your attention. I will be uh, giving a talk, as was mentioned, um, East-West Bookstore on the 30th of January. Um, if you want to know more about my work or about the book, this is the book, by the way, it just came out. I'm very happy to say. It's called Awake in the Wild. Mindfulness in Nature is a Path of Self-Discovery, available in your local bookstore, so I'm told. Um, I have a website called awakeinthewild.com, awakeinthewild.com, and has information about my book tour, the book, my nature retreats, counseling practice, and you can reach me through, through that website if you have questions. So I also have a couple of flyers, one about, uh, I, I lead a lot of these wilderness retreats, so this one is a kayaking and meditation retreat in Mexico. I know nobody wants to go to the sunshine in March, but in case you do, you know, there it is. I have some cards about my book. They're on the back table. So thank you for your attention.